Joanne McNeeking. I'm Head of Improving Care Experiences at Celsius at the University of Strathclyde. Can I just make an observation about having a room predominantly full of educators? You always come up on time, don't you? That is so impressive. Unlike us social workers who rock in late because we've got a crisis. So it's lovely to see you this afternoon. How's your day been so far? really good, isn't it? We've had some really fantastic speakers. I think Adam did an absolutely fantastic job. I think he's the only man that I've met that can actually make psychology funny. He's got such a lovely way about him, hasn't he, given in terms of getting a really strong sort of message around relationships and the importance of relationships. So I have a, a real opportunity this afternoon, and it's a real privilege to introduce you to Rohit Nain, who is our second keynote speaker. And Rohit has come up from Birmingham and is a little bit tired, so please be gentle on him. And um, he was in Birmingham yesterday, but you are based in Liverpool, aren't you, Rohit? Yes. yes. You're based in Hope School. You're, you're taking away my thunder here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. That's what happens when you give me a mic. You know, you've got to kind of wrestle it off me. So Rohit has come up, and he is going to speak about his school. And he's going to speak about the journey that his school has been on, particularly around the move away from sanctions and rewards into a much more focused attachment trauma school. Rohit has a bit of a history here. He won Head Teacher of the Year in 2017 for primary school, so I actually think that deserves a significant round of applause. And I think what comes through really strongly in speaking with Rohit is a real strong sense of cheering on change and encouraging hope which in many ways is a really strong theme today and is a really strong theme in terms of all of our work. So can I pass you over to Rohit to take the stage and let's be gentle and be kind with him and a good Scottish welcome. Come on, Rohit. So, do I just use this, yeah? Yes. Thank you all. Can you all hear me? Great. That's on me, that's me. Oh, that's great. I'm not even going to move off that because that, that is fantastic. Well done. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Rowan Nake. I'm a head teacher of Hope School. Hope School is a special school. Now, I don't know if you have special schools because I know that you were talking about inclusion and inclusivity in Scotland. But we do still have special schools in, uh, uh, in England. And our, my school is a school for social, emotional and mental health. Uh, 5 to 14, uh, so we take very young children right up to year, the end of year 8 and some in year 9, if that rings a bell with you, third years in my language before. Um, and we were called an SEBD school, I don't know if you have that term here, that's social, emotional and behavioural difficulties. That's the school. It's a new build in 2011, and that's our motto, if I try, I can. That's not actually written on the wall, by the way. That's look like it. We're talking about attachment, and I think Adam this morning uh, gave us some real good food for thought, because it's all about relationships and what we're expecting. And 
Tony Blair, when he came into power, said, education, 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 but actually didn't explain what education was. And actually, what we've been debating today, and what we've been speaking to people about, is what is education? And Adam talked about content, what's content, and what we're trying to deliver for our children. Um, So... Trying to understand an attachment and trauma-friendly school. I can't come here and tell, give you a blueprint of how to become an attachment and trauma-friendly school, but I can tell, I can sort of go through the journey, what we went through, and actually we learn from our mistakes. The journey began for me many, many years ago in 2012, and I attended something called the Hoffman Process. Okay, and the Hoffman Process was a seven-day process by which I underwent therapy, uh, regressional therapy, psychotherapy, and I, I said to my governors, I want some CPD on myself because I want to understand my own attachment and my own trauma, because if I'm going to build relationships with people, uh, then I need to know what's triggering me. Because I ran a school which was outstanding, but it was very punitive. It was all based on rewards and sanctions, and if you do this, this will happen. If you do that, that will happen. Actually, it made life very much easy for me and for my staff. Not for me, actually, but for my staff. So any teacher that came in, or any support staff that came into the school, they had this framework to work from. We had this behaviour policy that was... Ofsted said to us... I don't know if you have Ofsted, but you have a similar sort of thing. Ofsted is massive in England. Actually, it rules every head teacher. Uh, and I think... That's the cause, in many ways, why many of our children with special educational needs and who suffer from attachment and trauma are actually not so successful, not just in the educational system, but when they leave the educational system. Now, people think, you know, if I go back to this, I was on the train yesterday, and this, this, the reason I put this picture up was there's a, a very uh, famous, or well-known anthropologist, so famous I can't remember his name. <laughs> but he said, for true attachment and good attachment, we need seven, uh, nine months gestation outside the, uh, outside the womb as well as inside. And that's the definition of a working mother. Okay, so there's that close contact, uh, that skin contact with that. The, the, the culture that we live in, the culture that we live in, doesn't really allow for that because uh, our politicians are paying uh, all sorts of stuff to get childcare and so on and so forth so they can encourage mothers to work and I have no problem with mothers working but I'm just saying why, why, are, we, you know, why are we sending our mothers back to work so soon we could increase their maternity period, you know, and all sorts of stuff but I was on the train yesterday coming from Birmingham and I met a lady from Motherwell and we just got talking and I was talking to her and I said what I did and she told me what she did and she was just telling me that uh, I'm okay I'm, I'm, I've got a really good attachment and then she, then she went on to tell me that her mother had TB and her mother was quarantined quarantined for about four months so when she was one she couldn't have any physical contact with her mother and that made me think actually 
you will have some attachment and trauma difficulties. You may have worked through them, but you will have had them because all of us in this room will have a level of attachment and trauma. And when we're, especially in schools, when we're dealing with children who are displaying behaviours that you can call undesirable, you can call challenging, they trigger something in us. Because children can't actually make us angry, they can't make us do anything, because often we have the power, but they trigger something in us that makes us become punitive. And we can't punish the pain our children. But we use sanctions or we try and bribe them or coerce them into behaving. We also do that during the school setting. So if you do your work, you'll get a star or you'll get a certificate or that. Eventually the child realises, actually, I'm not, I'm not doing that work, especially children that are traumatised and have attachment difficulties. After a while, rewards mean nothing to them. Okay, um, so we were, we were in our school. We had children that used to run out of assembly because they didn't get the uh, they didn't get the certificate, or they'd have a meltdown because they didn't win a certain award. And, and I was thinking, why are we putting our children through this? And that's why I did a lot of work around attachment and trauma, but I had to do the work on myself first. So in 2014 was a crucial year. Uh, I've been working for 10 years uh, for, to get outstanding, and I was, I was working to a framework which was designed by Ofsted, which actually really didn't meet the needs of my children in my school, but I had to work to that framework. Well, I didn't have to, but I did, because to get any credibility to do some of the work I wanted to, I needed to make sure that otherwise my governors would have said, well, you know, just carry on like this. Um, so when we got outstanding, I sort of sat back and I thought, what's happening? Let's look, at, let's look at the outcomes for our children. And many of the children that left us, actually, if they did manage to go back to mainstream, they were excluded from there. When I tracked them further into life, they were part of this criminal justice service, and their outcomes weren't brilliant, really, um, but they had made progress. <laughs> according to the measures of Ofsted. And one of the measures that they usually make are literacy and numeracy, because you can get that data quite easily, can't you? You can get that data, and then you can compare that data with other schools, and then what you can do is you can put everybody in a league table, and then everybody sits on that league table, and we wouldn't do that to our children, but we do it to schools. Um, and I know many a head teacher who has gone into requires improvement or his school has been called inadequate who has handed their resignation in we have shame because it's shame behaviour really and we're shame, we, don't, we don't want to shame our children why do we want to shame the leaders that are running our schools because actually in England there's a real shortage of head teachers and there's a real shortage of senior leaders and there's a shortage of teachers um, and I personally believe one of the direct influences of Ofsted on that um, so anyway, 2014, we had a new code of practice. SEBD was changed to SEMH, so they took behaviour out of the equation. Once they took behaviour out of the equation, I thought, oh, this is a really good opportunity here to... Because our children's behaviour, they're not naughty children. All behaviour is a communication of some unmet, unmet need. 
Uh, and as Adam was talking about engagement, if they're not attending school, they're still telling us some, some, telling us something. So that was really a poignant there. Um, also, this has changed by then. Um, 2014, I was also six years from retirement. So I thought, oh, okay. Ofsted won't come back for another four or five years. I don't need to worry about anything. I can, I'm going to really just go for what I want to go for. So I said to my governors that this is what I wanted to do. I enrolled the, the assistance of a psychologist, Jenny Knock, and she's done some work in Scotland, I believe. Um, and we drew up a strategic plan and we do, drew up a training program for our staff. Now, if you want to know about attachment and trauma, you can Google it and you can look on the internet. But the training that we sort of jointly did was trying to make it as emotive as possible. So when, when the staff left the training, they said, oh, I've really messed my kids up, or my parents have really messed me up. Because actually, that's what happens in attachment. Nobody's got perfect attachment. And when I was thinking about my own children, and simple things like, I live in Manchester, I work in Liverpool, my wife works at the university, we come back home, my children were young, they were in childcare or in nursery or whatever. And the first argument my wife and I would have is, is it my turn to read tonight or is it your turn to read? No, no, it's your turn to read. No, it's not. It's your turn to read. And our children would pick up on those little nuances because, and then we'd read the bedtime story, we'd really read it really quickly. No, 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 no I'm not going to read another page. I'm not going to read it over again. Because we were tired, we had things to do, we had the next day's work to prepare, or we just simply wanted to relax and have a drink. But our children would pick up on the fact that we weren't present. Not that we didn't love them, they would pick up on the fact that we weren't present. And that's just a subtle thing. And so I say attachment, certainly attachment threads through all family lives. Um, there's a, lots of, there's a few of my friends who were really high, highly achieving academics. I've got a friend from Oxford. I've got a couple of friends that went to Cambridge. And one of them now has serious mental health problems. And that was because the education system just pushed and pushed and pushed. And later in life, he developed... He was very clever, but he didn't develop those skills to uh, support his mental health. <coughs> By the way, this picture is Sweden 1967, uh, and what they did was they changed driving on the left-hand side to the right-hand side, and this was the picture the next day. Uh, they thought it was, it was quite good at uh, showing change. I'm not going to talk too much about attachment, because I think you've had, uh, you've, you've had lots of things spoken to you about that, but really... As we're developing from pre-birth in the womb to about three, that's when our brain connections, our neurons, are connecting in our brains, and that's where we develop most of, 80% of our brain connections are happening then. If we don't get good attachment, or we suffer trauma, then we have holes in our development. And I think you probably all know that, but just remind, so those holes in our development will limit, well not limit, but what they will do is they'll, they'll, they'll 
not make our emotion, make us, our emotional well-being as well as it should be. Our milestones for development will not be right. So, brain development is linked to child development. So, by the time, by the age of three, if you've had good attachment, then the chances are, whatever life throws at you in the future, you'll be able to deal with it. So, if, if a trauma happens to you when you're ten, if you had that good development at the uh, early years then the chances are you'll be able to deal with it. So when we started looking at attachment and trauma in our schools, don't worry about not reading that, I know you won't be able to read it, but what we looked at was, we looked at all the children and we thought, let's, let's try and work out, let's try and work out what happened to them in their early lives. So we had to bring parents in and said, we want to draw a timeline of what happened to you and your child in the first three years. And this is a, a, an extreme example, but in the last part of her pregnancy, the, well, during her pregnancy, pre-pregnancy, she was a heavy drinker. So that fetus, while it was developing, was under the influence of that alcohol. Now, no mother is in a drink alcohol unless she's stressed. So once if she's stressed, then the placenta is being flooded with the stress hormone cortisol as well. And that's going to affect the brain development. And everything above this line is positive experiences. Everything below this line is negative experiences. And so if your positives, to be very, very crude, if your positives outweigh your negatives, then if we just say for the sake of it that you've got a reasonably good attachment. Okay? It's not as simple as that, but I'm just... So that's a child. This is me. Let's say this is my attachment. So I was born in India. I was hospitalised when I was about nine months for about two weeks. As a baby, if you're separated from your mum, then you're abandoned. That's all your brain, that's all you can feel is abandonment. My father came to this country as an economic migrant. Again, that was abandonment. I lived with my parents, who, uh, my grandparents, who were a secure base. Blah, 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 blah. But I had reasonably good attachment. And the point I'm making here is there's me with my attachment and trauma, dealing with a child in my school who's got their attachment and trauma, and then I wonder why I'm being triggered. But what's happening, it's triggering my own trauma that happened to me in my early years. So I said to my staff, right, this is an exercise that we all have to do and see if we can... So I, I got my staff to look at timelines as well and look at where they were coming from. Um, and it was confidential, I didn't want to see it, but I, I just wanted them to do it as an exercise so that they can understand where they were coming from. Uh, quite crudely, really, but really, that in itself, you have to know where your parents were. So if your mother was, had postnatal depression, then that's going to affect your attachment. If your father was abusive and you're in an abusive, your mother was in an abusive relationship, you might not know about it, but that's going to affect your attachment. Because up to about the age of three, we have something called an implicit memory. 
that's a body memory or a muscle memory. We don't actually can't memorize. Our explicit memory is the memory that we remember what we had for tea yesterday, what we did five years ago, and so on. But I sort of challenge anybody here, after about the age, before the age of about two, many of us will not be able to remember what happened to us. And those that claim that they can, I would also challenge them that somebody's probably talked to you about it at some point when you might have been four or five and you've remembered it from four or five rather than before two. Because your brain has actually not developed the capacity for a memory then. Uh, but if there's any medicals, <laughs> you might, uh, you know, that's, that's a claim I'm making. That's only my claim. And that's only because I've talked to lots of people about this. But if you're a genius, you might remember have a memory. So lots of things that happened to you before, you won't remember. So many children in my school have suffered trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and the biggest trauma is neglect. So where children have just been left, okay? They've not been stimulated. Uh, and I read some research around crawling, that children really need to learn to crawl before they start walking, and you should not encourage them to walk until they've done some crawling. Because actually crawling, what it does is it... Well, I don't know why I'm pointing out that. But it strengthens your core muscle, okay? And your core muscles actually are responsible for everything that happens in your body, including handwriting. So that was a revelation to me when we worked with OT. So... You see the point of that. So the point I'm making here is my staff really needed to be in the place, a good place, a good understanding of their own attachment before they could actually support the children that they were working with. And in that journey of ours, this is we're in our fourth year, a third of the staff left the school because it triggered lots of stuff in their own mental health. Um, so the attachment work is not... Easy, but once you get into it, the reason I do it is because I'm, it's personal development for me. I've looked at lots of my stuff that's happened to me, and it's actually helped me to become a much, much better leader now. This is what we used to do in our old system. We used to do a lot of shaming behaviour. We used to use sticker charts. We used to have uh, levels. So if you're really good, you're on level five. If you're really badly behaved, you're on level one. Every week, you got a certificate. You came into assembly. All the level fives were all clapped. And all the level ones, and, you know, it doesn't take a genius, level ones really stayed at level one and two. And level four and five often stayed at level four and five. And actually, you'd label the children right from the beginning and they re on the whole they, they just stayed there and I, and I thought my god what are we doing to these children but Ofsted said it was a great system they said oh god, fantastic you must, you must share this the, 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 your behaviour management strategies and systems that you've developed I said but they're not really developed there's nothing you know really genius about it actually it's just uh, a control mechanism that we've got for our children it allows us to manage their behaviour uh, in, in a controlling way. When they leave us, we haven't actually given them any skills of self-regulating or any intrinsic motivation because it's all extrinsic. We were very good at managing their behaviour. In fact, I'd say, 
crudely, we were very good at controlling them. But when they left us, they didn't have those skills. But we were so concerned, and our teachers were so concerned, that they've got to make progress. They've got to make progress. They've got to get stay in class. We'll bribe them to the, do the work. And if they, don't, if they don't work, if we bribe them, then we'll punish them to do the work. But one way or another, they'll do the work, because you know what Oxted will say. And, and I think lots of uh, schools are in that uh, mindset, really. So you can see, imagine... Myla at the top, if he's on red, he's going to be really shamed. And that shaming of children, shaming of adults, anybody that's shamed, they can't perform when they're shamed. <clears throat> so what we, what we did was we decided that no more sanctions, no more uh, rewards. We got rid of the behaviour policy. I'm just going to look at the time to see where we are. Got rid of the behaviour policy. And we've got a relational, relational policy, and it's a relational support for personal development policy. So there's no behaviour in it. And we try and take the word behaviour out of everything that we do, because behaviour is a need, an unmet need. Um, and in that unmet need, what we happened was staff had to form relationships with the children and not just relationships but really honest relationships you know so I'd have so I'd, I'd be walking down the corridor and I'd have a member of staff and I'd have a child so that's a member of staff and we'd have conversations we, we still do have conversations like oh I just can't get Bill to do his work he's just been uh, he's throwing things around the classroom and I'm sort of saying and Bill the child will say no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And he says, you, all, you, you teachers will always stick together, that sort of thing. And I said, okay, so tell me what happened. And I said, actually, Phil, I've got a relationship with Mr. O'Neill, and I'm going to ask him, and he's going to tell, tell me the truth, and he's going to tell you the truth right in front of you. He's not going to do it behind your back, and then I want you to tell me the truth. And then we started having these conversations, and once we started having these conversations, actually they were really powerful, because nobody was reacting, we were actually responding and then we use restorative justice and so on and so forth. And now it's really embedded into the uh, school system that life is so much easier for me, my staff, and the children. And if I ask you, what do you think caused them the one biggest anxiety in the school? Was it the punishments, the rewards, or having to do the schoolwork? Put your hands up if you think punishments. Put your hands up if you think schoolwork. Put your hands up if you think rewards. Actually, it was the rewards. The rewards were the thing because we were making them compete against each other. So they start telling tales on each other. And they'd sort of say, he did this and he did that. Because they wanted this reward. And many of the children were so anxious that they did do the work, but they were retaining nothing because they were working under that stress and anxiety. And pa parents said, when they came home, they'd start kicking off. And we'd say, oh, he's fine and he's with us. What are you doing wrong? He's fine in school. But actually, they were bottling this up. And when they got home, and now... We do so much work with the parents, and our parents have a real good understanding of attachment and trauma that they are behaving, whatever their behavior at school is, is the same at home. And it's, we've really got a real strong partnership um, in work. Now, this is called Aerial Ninjas, 
and we were very lucky because we worked with an occupational therapist and the occupational therapist uh, did an assessment on all the children and that's where we got the idea that if their core muscles aren't developed then children can't sit in, seat, and can't sit in their seat for long enough. Um, so we said, okay, let's take away the seats. They don't need to, they don't need to sit at the desk until their core muscles are developed. They don't need to, if they need to sit on the floor, they can sit on the floor. If they want to lie across there, they can lie across on the floor. Uh, but when we introduced this, subtly their core muscles started developing. And we found that children would sit on the floor and then they'd go to their desk. Um, and when, and I keep, I keep saying Ofsted as if they are the panacea to everything, but we did need their approval. And when they came in, they said their handwriting was outstanding. And that handwriting, we, we hadn't done anything on handwriting. There was no handwriting teaching or anything like that. We were just developing their core muscles. And through that, they developed their muscles in their bodies. And their fine motor skills allowed them to hold the pen and pencil so that they could write and their handwriting improved. And that was a real, was a real big thing for us. So our children do that, and actually, with all this, there's also lots of collaboration between the Christmas show and the children had to work together. Uh, and actually, his timing was a big thing, and they all supported each other. They were working in collaboration. That's the first time they've been working in collaboration. When they're playing football, they're just kicking hell out of each other, you know, trying to get the ball. But with, with this. Because it was all timed, they were working in collaboration. I don't know if you can read that, but that's, it's from a book called uh, Self-Observation. So I do a lot of uh, meditation, and I do a lot of yoga, and I've started to work, and that's, that's the sort of work I did start to do on myself, um, and just to be still. And this says, the intellectual centre, the brain's left hemisphere, is always the last to know. It is the slowest of all the centers because it's the place in the human biological instrument that does not require the survival necessary speed of instinctive or moving center. Its function is to serve, remember, observe, solve technical problems in the present, communicate with others. This is its place in the scheme of the body's functions. However, due to the culture we're born into, which is not a wisdom culture, but a culture of power and money, material culture, the intellectual intellect has been placed upon the highest pedestal and worshipped because it can give me money and power, the two things most valued by my society. Our entire education system is built upon the worship of the intellect as king. We, we educate the intellectual centre and ignore the bodies and the functions. And this was something that Adam touched on this morning, that actually if you think about your body and a lot of decisions that you probably make are instinctive okay you know you've all heard of gut reaction and often our gut reaction is often a true reaction if we ignore our gut reaction we will we always you know we often say i knew that i knew i should have put that money on that i should have, knew i should put 100 quid on that horse i knew it's, our gut reaction actually is very intuitive and it's the first it's the speediest thing in our body followed by movement followed by intellect so if you go into a room and your gut will tell you if, you, if, it's, if, if there's danger there you'll fear it it'll tell your body to do something 
and you might move out of the room. And then once you're out of the room, you'll process it and you'll think, oh, I'm not going to go into that place again. I'm not going to Glasgow again. It's really scary. I'm not going to, you, know, you understand what I mean? And we just ignore that. And that's why our educational system, we really have to look at the body. And so what we're doing in our school is using occupational therapy as our main tool and assessing our children and really paying attention to the body. Um, I mean, even PE now, all our creativity, because we're so hell-bent on measuring academic progress, that creativity in our schools has gone. Music, the arts, they're all sidelined. And actually, they're the things that serve our body. And once we serve our body, our intellect will just grow with it. And what we've found is we spend, we've probably spent about a third of children's time doing interventions, non-academic interventions. They are making more progress now than they've ever made. Because whatever diet of learning the curriculum that we give them, they're able to absorb it, they're less anxious, they're more creative, and their memory has increased. Okay? And I, w- I, I, I really wish, well, I don't know, I, I encourage you to look at our website, and I encourage you, I did send the Ofsted report to Linda, she's going to send it out in fact, I, I encourage you to read the uh, Ofsted report. Um, it did go viral on Twitter. I was so proud and so pleased by it, and I, may, I might as well blow my own trumpet, because without that, I wouldn't be standing here sharing this good news with you, because I'm probably thinking, well, if we didn't get what we did, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have the opportunity to share this with you. But the attachment and trauma-friendly way, understanding attachment and trauma, and working in the attachment way, is really the only way. It is the best way, not just for the children, but for your own personal development. Uh, And I've grown as a person working in my school by the children supporting me and me supporting them. We are a real community now where we can support each other. And I think there are lots of adults out there who have trauma and attachment unresolved. And I encourage people to go and get that unresolved trauma and do something about it. Because without that, it, comes, it will come through at some point, and it comes through through our own mental well-being. Uh, and some of the reasons why schools may be less inclined to be attachment-friendly, and they're the usual things, issues of funding and resources, that's a big thing for all of us, but if you decide... And this is about leadership, really. If the leadership team decides that this is going to be... We're going to make this work, you can make anything work. Uh, and there was no going back. 14 years ago, in 2004, I introduced. I said that we're never going to exclude a child from our school. And we're never going to send a, a child home from our school. And what we're going to do, the staff said, I said, I don't know. We're not going to do it. We're just not going to do it. We'll find a way even if we have to hold a child for three hours, we're not going to let him leave this building because of poor behaviour. If you come to our school now, well, two or three years later, I, uh, the children would say, oh, you can't get excluded from here. I have had to ask a member of staff who said to me, look, this, this boy is unteachable, and uh, I really think you should... I'm, I'm not going to teach him anymore. 
I have to say, we'll give us your P45 and there's the door, because this school is for children first and to serve you second, because you're here to serve the children first. And I think we really got to get that rhetoric out there. Of course, we have to look after our staff. I'm not saying we don't look after our staff, but we have to make sure that they know what they're getting into. It is for the children, uh, and especially special schools, where I was talking to somebody earlier about secure units, and there was I think, somewhere here, somebody was talking about secure unit. Anybody can remember? And they said, I went to the secure unit, and actually the staff had so many issues that they were working in a secure unit where children are highly traumatised, because they were hiding in, in, in a work environment, actually under, behind the trauma of these children. So we've got to really be careful about where we work. And it, it, is, it is like safeguarding, making sure we pick the right staff to work with the children, because it is for the children. We are serving the children. But we can develop our staff through appropriate CPD and appropriate knowledge. In England, the curriculum has changed, I don't know if anyone knows, and the Ofsted framework has changed. I have been inundated by consultants, companies, selling their wares, saying, you must come on this course. If you want your school to get outstanding, if you've got to come on this course. Consultants that are come out of the woodwork, you know, delivering courses that are unnecessary. It's like saying, teach to the test and then you'll get your outstanding. And we, we, you know, we, we had a real battle in England about schools teaching to the key stage two SATS test uh, at the expense of the creative curriculum. They were just teaching to the test so they would pass it. But actually they were really not learning much because they were really sort of narrow, narrowing the curriculum. And, and, and I think we've got to get the appropriate CPD for our, our staff. And the appropriate CPD is sometimes go away and do something for yourself. So I give my staff some time just to do something for themselves, their own well-being. But I'm not increasing the number of children with, I've got a few more minutes, increasing the number of children with neurodiversity, the number of isms that are out there, ADHD, ODD, FASD. If you know those acronyms, the first thing that people, if I, if I said to you, oh, there's a child with ADHD coming to your school, what, what, what would your first thought be? Are they on medication? Are they on medication? Or, oh shit, I've got somebody that's going to be real, a real challenge to manage their behaviour. That's we just, basically it's just a label for poor behaviour. Uh, but ADHD is symptomatic of early years attachment and trauma, as are most isms. They're a symptom of early years, poor uh, neuro brain development. Um, and I, uh, maybe I, I was at an ADHD conference held by uh, <coughs> held by several independent schools and pharmaceutical companies. They sponsored the ADHD conference, and obviously the pharmaceutical companies and the, the independent schools they were just selling their wares. If you can't manage this child, give us £80,000 and we'll take him into our school. And the pharmaceutical companies were saying, if you try this pill, you've got to manage their behaviour. And in our school, we do have children that have ADHD and they do take uh, medication, but we try and discourage it because we actually want to see what their behaviour is because it's very easy to medicate a child 
leave them in the corner, and three years later, uh, you've done no work with them because they've been dosed and they've just been compliant, but you've, you've actually done no work with them because you've not observed their behaviour. And everybody says, oh, he's a lovely child. Well, he is a, they're all, all love children are lovely, but we've masked that uh, <coughs> behaviour. I was, and at, anyway, at this conference, there was, a, sadly, sadly to speak, a Scottish MP who coined the phrase, pills for skills. Dose them up, and then you can teach them the skills. And I, was, I had a real argument with him. And I, I can't remember his name. I mean, but, but he came on, and that was his slogan, pills for skills. And I said, I just, you know, I just... He actually got quite aggressive with me, um, and I'm quite placid, really, most of the time. But pills for skills is we can't just medicate the, our children. We just can't do it. There is a place for medication. Of course there's a place for medication, but you've got to do the work alongside it. If you're not doing the work alongside it, and most schools will not do the work alongside it, because if somebody's compliant and behaving okay, and three other boys or girls are misbehaving, you often ignore that one child, actually that child probably needs the most help because they're being medicated and their, their, their behaviours being masked. Um, ODD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder. You know, Oppositional Defiant Disorder basically is just child development. Most children at the age of two, if you ask them to do something, they'll say no. Put your shoes on and go to the park, no. Do you want an apple? No. Give me an apple. Because that's what, that's, what, that's what two-year-olds do. Two-year-olds have to go through that process because they are learning to be independent. Before they can say yes, they have to learn to say no. And it's that resistance that they put against us. You know, we, we all do that experiment where you put a uh, palm against somebody else's, and the more you push, the more they push. So the more resistance you give them, the more resistance they give you. I'm driving home, and my wife will say to me, can you go and pick up something from... Uh, can you go to the shops on the way home? And I'd say, no. What do you want? And my automatic reaction is no. And that's something that's part of our development. The curriculum, as Adam mentioned, what do we teach? What, what are we going to teach them? What is the content? What's the content? If you, if you, if you teach their bodies... They will be ready to learn. I guarantee that. They will be ready to learn. If you focus on the, the practical side, the things that you were talking about, horse ride, all the other things, they will then be ready to learn because that helps them to regulate. Um, the local authority, to the lack of local authority and the capacity to support, and the national narrative is based on intellectual progress. That's what we value in this culture, because intellectual progress means power and money, and that's what we... That's, that, that's the thing that we value. So anyway, that's my taxi time. So I'm, I'm sorry, but I had to rush through that. But I really did want to get the message through that attachment and trauma schooling is a real possibility. It's not pie in the sky. It's re it really can happen. And it is from top down, from MPs to councils and to leaders in schools, it is a real possibility. Um, visit, our, visit our website and we're happy to support, we're happy to for visitors, but I would really like to see people take this on board. Thank you for listening.